Good morning. One of the ways we test our elders every year is we make them read through a genealogy in public and see how they do. <laughs> uh, well, welcome, and uh, I guess Merry Advent. Uh, it's not just Christmas time at Target. Uh, it's Christmas in the church as well. Uh, you might be asking yourself, just a little bit, you've been hearing this, this language of Advent, and I know for some of us, we may have grown up where every year uh, church, maybe if we grew up in the church, we, we um, kind of had an Advent season before Christmas, or perhaps you grew up where you're like, I've never heard of this thing before. Uh, Advent just comes from the Latin word uh, Adventus, and it's essentially the word for the coming. It means the coming of Christ into the world. And so during this time, the, the church historically has taken the four weeks in the modern world that just ends up being between Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, to just anticipate, to, to celebrate the first coming of Christ into the world. And it also anticipates Christ coming again into the world at the end of the ages. And so uh, as we begin Advent this morning, I don't know, there's something about this season that I just, I love this season. There, there's something, it's like, it's a different state of affairs. Like when you're walking around, everyone's just kind of like, I don't know. It's like everyone's. It's like everyone has a cup of hot cocoa in their in their hands, and they're walking around like like everyone turns into Tiny Tim during this season. Like you know, Merry Christmas, gentlemen and lady, right? Like everyone, you just feel it all around you. It's this time of peace, and and especially in our day and age where it just. <laughs> Uh, it, it, peace is not the word I would use to describe most of the cultural phenomenons of the last few years uh, in our society. Uh, but it seems like there's kind of this, I guess you would call it almost like a ceasefire and just this time of peace <laughs> with one another. Uh, that's the best way you could describe the state of affairs uh, during this month where it's just kind of like everybody put down your guns and we're able to actually just like welcome one another. Uh, and, and so one of the things with that is we have this theme this year of a weary world rejoices. And it's this idea that we're in this time where it's like the world around us just seems weary. Uh, but at the same time, how do we find that place of rejoicing? And, and one of the things that this, this season captures is just that season of peace and rejoicing. Uh, but it's not just a modern world. Uh, one of my favorite stories that I want to begin with, that's just kind of like the idea of Christmas and that peace, how it just breaks out when you wouldn't expect it. Uh, and many of you have heard of it. It's a story from World War I in the trenches. It's called the Christmas Truce. Maybe you've heard of this. But on, on Christmas Eve, German and British soldiers were, uh, all of a sudden, they kind of broke out from Christmas Eve through Christmas Day. And just this Christmas celebration, they stopped fighting. Uh, th this is the story. It says, in Christmas Eve 1914, roughly 100,000 British and German soldiers were involved in an unofficial cessation of hostility along the western front of World War I. The Germans placed candles on their trenches and on Christmas trees, then continued the celebration by singing Christmas carols. The British responded by singing carols of their own. The two sides continued by shouting Christmas greetings to each other. Soon thereafter, there were excursions across no man's land, that's where the fighting would be, uh, where small gifts were exchanged, such as food, tobacco, and alcohol, they weren't Baptist, and souvenirs such as buttons and hats. Uh, and the artillery in the region fell silent. Uh, a, a, a soldier wrote home describing this. Listen to these words. I'll have it on the screen. He says, Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The thing started last night, a bitter cold night, with white frost. Soon after dusk when the Germans started shouting, Merry Christmas, gentlemen, to us. Of course, our fellows shouted back, and presently large numbers of both sides have left their trenches, unarmed and met in the shot-riddled no-man's-land between the lines. Here, the agreement, all on their own, came to be made that we should not fire at each other 
until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not allow them too close to our line and swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? You saw this, this idea of, of Christmas. There, there, it wasn't like, you know, their, their leader, the military leaders called this in and said, we'll have a, an official, it just happened. There, there's something about Christmas and this sense of just this state of affairs where we know Christmas represents something much bigger. That, that in the midst of all the weariness, in the midst of all the warring, that there's just peace. But, and that's what I love about this story, that it captures that, that we might just feel when we walk around in the Christmas season. But, but I think the reason why I shared this is because it also captures something that we know is looming, which is that ceasefire is temporary. Uh, the soldier's letter continues. He says, uh, but there was dead silence that morning. The silence ended early in the afternoon. This is the day after Christmas. And the killing started again. It was a short peace in a terrible war. A short peace in a terrible war. In some ways, uh, like in my mind when I think about the Christmas season, the holiday season, right, through like all the way through New Year's, I, I feel like that line, it's a short peace in a terrible war, is, is like what my, the first line of my journal entry on January 2nd would be. Like, man, that was a great peace, but here we go, we're back right at the, this terrible war. The time of peace is done, the ceasefire is over. And I think one of the things with Christmas that I've always kind of struggled with is we have this time and there's the holiday letdown afterwards and all that. And I think it's because it's not just the, the sweets and the presents and all that. I think it's also just that there's a state of affairs that we're like, I want this to continue. We know that there's something here that it's, it's kind of hinting at this reality that we were made for. And it's gone. And so one of the things is I want for us this Christmas season, in the midst of a weary world, in the midst of what will be a ceasefire, but the, the, the firing will continue again. Here's the thing in the gospel. It's not just a, a, a short ceasefire. We are offered a peace, a state of affairs that Matthew is going to highlight here, that he's going to zoom in on as he starts this gospel. He says, you're, you're meant for a state of affairs, and you have it in Jesus Christ. A state of affairs, a state of peace that never ends. And even in the midst of a weary world, you can have that peace. And so today we're going to look at that, this first week looking at Matthew's gospel. What is this peace? What is this reality that Christ has brought into this weary world that's not meant to just be a temporary ceasefire, just a, a temporary peace in a, in, a, in a long war? But in fact, it's meant to be a peace that doesn't cease. And so what we're going to look at first, we're going to see uh, the story as it was supposed to be, the story of the world as it's supposed to be. Second, the weary story of our world. What does Christ come into? And then third, the story of the Christ and the peace that he brings. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, we thank you. Uh, as we enter into this Christmas season, this Advent season, Lord, as we, we turn our hearts focusing on Christ, your Advent, your coming into the world, Lord, would you help us prepare our hearts for that reality, Lord, that we, uh, in the midst of enjoying all the things that this season represents, Lord, would we ultimately, all of it, whirl up in glory to you, would all of it point to you, and would we walk out this season just with a, an anchoring in who you are that gives us a peace in the midst of the weariness around us, but Lord, a peace knowing that that is a peace that doesn't cease, that continues and only gets better. Each chapter gets better than the last for all of eternity. And so, Lord, would you grip us with that truth? Would you open our minds to grasp, our hearts to grasp, our souls to grasp it? Spirit, would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. 
Well, I know uh, the one question that you were asking yourself while the scripture reading was going, which was, is he really going to preach from a genealogy? <laughs> You're going, oh, we just woke up. It's the first Sunday back after Thanksgiving. Like, I'm barely awake, and we're doing a genealogy? Yep, we are. Uh, and so the reason we're, we're starting here, one, is because this is where Matthew's gospel starts. We're going to be in Matthew's birth narrative for the next four weeks. Um, and then in Jan- January, we'll return to the gospel of John where we're at, we're at and be marching all the way up through the resurrection on Easter. Uh, but there's a reason often we read a genealogy and we go, why is that there? Uh, but for, for first century readers, they would have actually understood why this was included. And there are profound reasons why Matthew starts with it. So that's where we're starting this morning. What he does is he's capturing something of the story as it was supposed to be, the story of our world that we lost. See, the first line, verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Just stop there. That phrase in the Greek, the book of the genealogy, could also be translated in the Greek, the the book of the Genesis, the book of the beginning. Uh, And immediately when this is read, you can imagine this is the beginning of the New Testament, there, there's been 400 years of silence, and, and there's been this, this silence from God, and all of a sudden it opens up. Here is this new chapter that God is writing in redemptive history, in world history. And what is it? It's that he is bringing about a new beginning, a new Genesis. In fact, they would have actually, from the, the Greek translation that they would have been reading of the Hebrew Scriptures, of Genesis 1-1, it would have had parallels there that immediately it would be like reading Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, he's saying God is doing something new, God is recreating something as profound as the first creation in this one, this Jesus. And I'm about to tell you the story of how. Now, Matthew is then going to go into this genealogy where he goes through the the family lineage coming to Jesus. And the question is, why does he use a genealogy right away? Uh, Genealogies are something that are all throughout Scripture. And these genealogies uh, are capturing, have a specific impact. Now, first what I want to say, the reason why, there's two reasons for the genealogy. The first is, for this one, is that it captures something that was lost from that original creation. So the first phrase captures something, it harkens back, it has echoes of Genesis 1 immediately. It's almost as if this begins in the beginning, Jesus. It's saying something new has come in Jesus. And, and so you're immediately thinking, Genesis, well, what was the original genealogy? The original genealogy comes in Genesis 2-4. If you don't know this, the the English translations of the Bible, the chapter and verse numbers were added in later. So a good place where actually they should have probably broken off Genesis 1 when the creation account would have actually been the last verse should have been what is now 2-4 because it summarizes what happens in the creation account. And listen to what is said. It gives us a genealogy. To summarize it, it says this, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. <laughs> I think he's driving home the point, right? And these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, just like the generations of the Christ. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth and the heavens. So what's going on here is he's saying God has created in six days and on the seventh day he's resting because he's delighting and he's created this state of affairs. He's created this world where he's to dwell with his people. And this was supposed to be the first and the last genealogy ever written. This was supposed to be the last one to say this is the state of affairs forever. That's the state of God making this world filled with his glory, teeming with his glory. And you're made to walk with him in that. 
to have a relationship with him, to be in his presence, and, and to not have to strife with one another. Uh, theologians, well, really in the Old Testament, prophets especially, there, there's a Hebrew word for this state that they were made for. Uh, it's the word shalom. That's the Hebrew word. And you may have heard it before. And we usually translate it as peace. But, but shalom means even more than peace. It just doesn't mean like a ceasefire. It means it's, it's the state of being that we're created for. This is what one author, Cornelius, planted to God. And he, he says it like this. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation and justice. Fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are met and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Matthew is bringing in a genealogy because and he's referring to Genesis because he wants us to remember when this genealogy opens that there is a state of affairs. It's not as it should be. That we are actually created for a state of affairs that how it should be and it's the state of affairs which is shalom. See, one of the things is we, we live in a weary world and we, we desire during this season. As human beings, we desire, made in the image of God, we desire that peace. We desire that state and, and the name of that state is shalom. And see, it's not, a, it's not a bug as a human being that we, we desire peace. It's, it's a feature. It's how we're designed. And we're meant to have this with God and with one another. And so what Matthew's starting with here is he's saying, I want you to remember that there's a state of affairs that was lost that we're, you're meant for. And Jesus is going to enter the world in order to recreate that. Now, the second reason for the genealogy, though, is not just to remind us of the world as it was created and the way it's supposed to be, but also to remind us that, of course, and highlight the way, the reality of the fact that it's not as it should be. You see, the next genealogy that comes up in Scripture, then, is in Genesis 5. And, and I bet if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, uh, you've at some point realized, like, you, you start reading through the Bible and you get to places like Genesis 5 or whatnot, and you come to where it's like a whole chapter, if not multiple chapters, of just genealogy. And, and when you're reading through the Bible, you come to this, and you're like, why are they emphasizing, like, this guy had a son, this guy had a son, this guy had a son? You're like, I will never remember these names. And, and, you, get, and you just keep going and going. You're like, why are they doing this? Well, what's happening here is, remember, God's created the world as it's supposed to be. Something has happened, though. Sin has entered the world. See, instead of pursuing that shalom that God provided in God's presence, what had happened was humanity has, had rejected God's shalom and decided to pursue their own shalom, pursue their own state of affairs where they're ruling and they get, they get to call the shots, they get to determine what would be that shalom. And what happened was from there, it starts with Cain and Abel, and then from there, their descendants, and, and you see it with all the things of the earth, all the arts and all the industry and all instrumentality, all these things, then you see it being used to like glorify man, and it's like death, and, and this reality has entered the world of death, and the, the vandalism of shalom, just this absolute tearing the fabric, this corruption of society, the, the psychological just falling apart of humanity on an individual level. And so what you get in Genesis 5 is now the, what's happening there is instead of it being a genealogy, it's supposed to be God created and it's good forever and we're with him. Instead, it's this man had a son and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. 
and on and on. So we'd, it's, it's a big exclamation point. Hebrew scriptures, they were written on animal skins. They didn't have much space, so they condensed it, and it was only the consonants, and there's no space between words. So when they repeat things, it's emphasizing something because there are no exclamation points. There was no way to emphasize something. So the way you emphasize something was you took up a huge amount of space to say this person died this person died, this person died, this person died. Welcome to the state of affairs. Welcome to our weary world. God shalom. That state just is something that echoes in our hearts, but when we try to grasp it, it's something that's as gone as quickly as the Christmas dinner. But yet our hearts, our souls long for. What Matthew's saying is what was lost, this one has come. And he's come so that he might recreate that reality. You might know that shalom. You might know his presence. You might know him. Now, before going on to how they could, they could find that in Jesus, until going on to the culmination of how this happens in Jesus, uh, he goes through this genealogy to essentially capture the dynamics. What is it at the core of this weary world? So he kind of recounts the tragedy of Israel and this weary world story, and that's where we go next. The, the genealogy re recounts this, this tragedy of Israel's history, this absolute tragedy. It's, it's really just kind of a continuation of the Genesis 5 genealogy, that things have just continued in this state ever since then. And so what he does is he, uh, he purposefully highlights some of the things that take place throughout the Old Testament, throughout Israel's history. And throughout human history, you could say. Now, there are a lot of things, a lot of generations that are not included here. And we'll see in a little bit why Matthew has structured it the way he has. This is why in Luke's gospel, he gives a genealogy, and they're different genealogies. It's not because one's right and one's wrong. They're emphasizing different parts of the family tree to emphasize something different about the redemption Jesus brings. And so here, what we have is a specific thread of the family tree where he's, he's unpacking what has happened. Now, what I love about this genealogy is when you read it, I'm like, this, this is why the Matthew gospel is perfect for the family holidays, because all this does is it brings out all the family drama and all the family scandals, and it just brings it right out into the open. <laughs> so this is one of those, you know when you get together for like the holidays, your family gets together, you recount family history, and there are just things you know in your family you just don't say Right? You just don't bring up, like, in my family, I had an uncle, like, he had a little bit too much to drink, and he ran his car into a house and knocked this old lady out of the bed. And as soon as you're like, hey, remember when Uncle Guy? Like, shh, shh, shh. Like, we don't talk about that, right? Like, every family has that stuff. Well, Matthew, he walks right up, and he's like, let's talk about the family story, why don't we? Right? And he just brings it all out. Because this is what he does. Right away, he goes into, in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, by the way, one of the things, anytime you see Abraham and Isaac, you immediately, well, he kind of glossed over the whole Hagar and Ishmael thing, right? Uh, but then we have in Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, I know some of this, it goes into a lot, of, there's, there's a lot of Old Testament history packed into this. And so I just want to unpack a, a little bit of it, because some of us are familiar with these stories, some aren't. But when we hear that Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, now, when it refers to Judah and his brothers, immediately it brings to mind what Judah and the brothers had done. See, Jacob, or, or the, the brothers, these 12, become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is at the point where the family tree just goes from kind of one family and Abraham and his sons to now becoming nations. So now this is where the family tree kind of starts to like branch out. And what it says that the origin story of when the family goes from a family to nations is riddled with scandal. 
And what Judah and his brothers did was at the core of it, there's a man named Joseph who was the youngest of the brothers. And what they did was in their pursuit of shalom, in their pursuit of whatever each of them wanted, whatever, it was that affirmation because there were a lot of issues where they wanted their dad's affirmation. They wanted his blessing. They wanted the Technicolor dream coat, that whatever it is. They, they wanted these things. And in their pursuit of them, Joseph got in the way. And when Joseph got in the way, they threw him into a well, which in the first century was essentially a prison. Prisons weren't above ground. A lot of times they were below ground and in a hole in the ground. So they put him into this, this prison, this dungeon in the ground. They put him in a pit, and then they sold him, sold him into slavery. This is told in Genesis 37. It says, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother in our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him, so don't kill him, but let's sell him into slavery. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. The story starts with a scandal in the family where immediately in seeking that shalom, what they do is they see one of their brothers as in the way, and they eliminate him. And this is how the family tree begins. Uh, but, but then it, it continues within this kind of other dynamic because here we're kind of eliminating somebody that gets in the way of shalom. But then we have immediately, verse 3, then Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you're, if you're an astute reader, you immediately go, okay, so what's the relationship of Judah and Tamar? And then you realize, wait, uh, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. And then you go, that's weird, Right? Because she's having children. Why? Because if you read the episode, which you can go to Genesis 38, 37, you can, you can read the episode. The Hebrew scriptures are amazing. They're, I always say they're like, a, they're like a Spanish soap opera with Hebrew subtitles. Right? Like if you go back, like read the story, it's his daughter-in-law becomes a prostitute. He pays her, and he ends up having children. It's a whole scandal. And I'm from Appalachia, Ohio, because before we have the family tree, how it branches, and then it's like in Appalachia, Ohio, we say, this family tree don't branch, if you know what I mean. Right? And so they're having, now we have this scandal where now instead of somebody gets in the way of that idea of shalom and what you want, now instead you use somebody as a means to get your shalom. And back and forth, we get these two dynamics all the way through this genealogy where we see people using and exploiting and, and th eliminating people to get their shalom and whatever their vision of it is. And this is the dynamic that comes up throughout this genealogy is that when we, humanity, pursue what we're intended to have in God's shalom, when we, intend, when we create this utopia in our mind and we go pursue it, what will happen is we will exploit others to get it. And it's on an individual level, and then it corrupts and pollutes at a cultural and societal level. We see both of these dynamics with the line about David and Bathsheba. The end of verse 6, it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, uh, by the way, by the wife of Uriah is just a nice way of saying by another man's wife. Do you catch how much he's highlighting here, the different scandals? Why in the world? Can you imagine if you're telling your family history? This is exactly what you don't include. He's highlighting these things on purpose. 
And why is he highlighting? Because he's saying, in your pursuit of shalom by your own means, again and again, the same things have happened. You exploit just like here. Why is he say the wife of Uriah? Because everyone knows this is the story of Bathsheba, and they immediately think of how David just exploits Bathsheba for his own ends. That shalom was his pleasure, and he just exploited her and used her for that. But then on the other hand, he highlights Uriah here. Why? Because then the other side of that exploitation comes in when Uriah got in the way. He eliminated him. Had him killed. And on through the genealogy, we could read verses 7 through 11, and we could highlight all the kings. That's what these are. These are the kings of Israel, and on and on what we see is exploitation, a pursuit of a vision of shalom, a demand for some kind of pleasure, of power, of whatnot, because there's this deep unsettledness, exploiting the people of God, exploiting the nations, exploiting the worship of God, all in a desire to try to find that shalom, but looking for it in the wrong place. And so what Matthew is doing in highlighting this is he's highlighting what happens when we go down this road. Because the, the result of this in verse 11, it says, after this, at that time of the deportation to Babylon, what happens is this family tree, this scandal throughout the generations and just this, this weary world story continuing and looking and trying to find that shalom and only increasingly finding brokenness and darkness and pain and hurt and just trying to take hold of it. Generations warring, families warring, nations warring, until the point when they're just after this and they won't turn to God. And what God does is he just hands them over then to the nations. He says, you want to go find shalom like the rest of the world? Then fine, go try to find shalom. Try to find it in this world. And what they find is then when they try to go find it in, on the terms of this world, they just become enslaved and they become captured. And he says, this is where it leads That deportation is called the exile in the Old Testament. It's, it's literally spiritually meant to capture spiritual death and banishment from the very presence of God in Israel at the temple of just darkness and slavery. And what he's saying here, Matthew is saying, is this is the weary story. This is where it goes. And what happens is when they're sent away, this family, this tree is just rotten to the core and all of humanity, this is the reality. And to the point where in Isaiah says, when they go away into exile, that's why in Isaiah 6, there's a famous prophecy where he says, they've been reduced down to a stump. That family tree that was meant to flourish of that seeking of shalom by different means and finding it in God. And one of the things I know it can be easy to, you know, read the scriptures and read about the, the people here that are recounted and go, well, those people, they didn't know what they're doing. But I think it's always helpful to just pause at these moments and say, let's, let's take a moment to look in the mirror. Like how often do we have a vision of some kind of a shalom? And then as we pursue that, like the, the perfect family, the perfect marriage, the perfect amount of money, the perfect, and what we do is we end up exploiting others emotionally, exploiting others economically, exploiting others relationally, sexually, just to get what I demand is my shalom. 
And this happens all the time, even often with our best intentions. I, I, this is a little bit off script, but I think I can remember all the details. But like, it's a niche thing, but you've, you may have heard this last two weeks, kind of the crazy saga of the uh, is it FTX and the, the whole thing with uh, Bitcoin or the cryptocurrency thing and, and that whole scandal. And, and what's happened, what I find interesting in it is this founder who had actually been pulling this, the wool over people's eyes and stealing, robbing money and moving money around that wasn't actually there and bankrupting all these people. What I find interesting is studying his view, his worldview was effective altruism and it was this idea that if you do the most good, it's just utilitarian, do the most good. And he determined I want to do all this good and guess what? If this is my idea of utopia, this is my definition of good, then all the people and all of the money involved in this becomes something that's a means to that end and I can exploit it however I want. See, what happens is when we start by just creating our own end, even when we think it's good, is we can often then go back and we will use and we'll exploit and we'll manipulate and abuse in order to get that end. What Matthew's saying here is in the midst of that, that's all because our hearts are driven by this restlessness. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in thee. Our hearts are restless. And until we find that rest in Christ and God, what will happen is we will take people by the throat and we will wrestle them into something that will give us a little taste of that shalom. And so are there ways right now where we're not allowing God to bring that shalom, bring that rest, and we're trying to force others to be enslaved to give it to us? So how how does God give us that shalom? It's not enough just to go, well, stop it, you know, (laughs) stop exploiting. It's God needs to give us that shalom, to actually have it. So how does he do it? This is where we come to the story of the Christ. One of the things I want to note as we're in this season of Advent is just... uh, Sometimes we can think Jesus' story started at Christmas morning, you know, like at the Advent, but it didn't start at the Advent. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's God. And so his story started in the eternity past. But one of the things that Matthew does here is he says, remember, he's not just starting here at the manger with his birth, but actually how God brings about his redemption into the world and the story of Jesus, he wants to highlight something that began back with Abraham. So he's like, it's not just Advent, it goes back to Abraham. We're going to see in a moment, it goes back even to creation. But he takes us all the way back to Abraham. This is why in verse 1, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So he goes back to David. And he says, and actually before that, the son of Abraham. He's highlighting something. He's saying there's something about Abraham that ever since the time of Abraham, God has been working out and it's culminating now in Jesus. So what happens with Abraham? Why is he referred to him? Well, God had done a few things. This is in Genesis 12 through 15. You can read the different aspects of this if you want to after. Uh, but In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham three things. He says, I will do three things. You now are in a world filled with death. You are in a world that is weary. And the way I will bring about my redemption, I'll bring about my shalom, is through three things. One is I will provide an offspring. I will provide a son. I will provide one who will bring my presence to my people. One who will lead you out of slavery. One who will be a deliverer. One who will be ultimately your savior. Uh, second, then, I'm going to, he will bring you, uh, he will be, he will bring my shalom to such a degree that he will become the desire of nations. 
uh, he will bless the nations of this world. That In fact, it's not just Christianity as a Western construct. It's in fact that Christianity is meant to be this worldwide thing that all of humanity, creating the image of God, that all of our hearts are restless for his presence. And I will bring my blessing to the nations of me, of my presence, of my redemption of life in me. And so all the nations will be, he'll be the desire of all the nations. And, and, and then lastly, he, he will bring a reign. He'll bring a land. He'll bring a kingdom. He says, I'll give you a land, and ultimately this land becomes a kingdom that he will bring. He will bring a reign. He'll bring a rule. He'll bring a presence in the midst of this life. He'll bring righteousness and justice and that peace. And so he makes these promises to Abraham, and what Matthew is saying here is that all of this then is going to culminate in Jesus. That all these things that God had promised to Abraham, all these things that also go through David and, and we see in the kind of king that he is, all of these things, Matthew spends his entire gospel unpacking how this is. What he does here at the beginning is he's saying Jesus is the one who brings that peace. And he says, they've been looking this whole time and none of the descendants of Abraham, there's no man, there are, there are great and mighty men and women in this. They're good and flawed, deeply flawed and all over the place along the spectrum of people who are here. There are famous ones, unknown ones other than their names written here. But all of them could not bring that state of affairs, no matter how talented, no matter how good looking, no matter how successful, no matter how nice. Only one. And it's this Jesus. This is why then in verse 16, he says, Jacob, the father, it's culminating now in Jesus, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Now, it's interesting to note here that he doesn't just say Jesus Christ was born. I, th I, th I think this is helpful because often we forget that Christ is a title that's attributed to Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness. Je in other words, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? <laughs> You're like, birth certificate, Jesus, last name Christ, right? Like, what does Christ mean? Christ is the title. He's saying Jesus, who is the Christ. It's conferred on Jesus because there is something that term means that Jesus is. And what that term means is literally the anointed one. The one who all of God's promises, all the things that God has said he will do, this one who is blessed to bring about this reality, he says, this is the one who is the, has that anointing. This is the one who will accomplish these things. But not only then he's Jesus the Christ, but he says also not only the anointed one, but the anointed path to peace. Uh, you know, in John, which we've, we've been preaching through John, will come soon to when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. When, when Jesus comes, he's not like all the other spiritual gurus or Leaders of movements where he says, hey, I, I have some truth. I have, a, I have a specific corner or insight on truth. Or uh, I, I know the path to enlightenment. Um, I know the path to true life. I can give you some, some techniques and whatnot to get there. Jesus is the only one in world history, religious leader, that I'm aware of, who says, I am. I not only can point you to it, I am the truth. I not only can point you on the path, I am the path. Uh, I not only will point you to life and bring you to life, I am the life. And what Jesus is saying here is I'm the God of the universe who's now come back into the world to bring the very life because I created the entire world. And so therefore, I am bringing back that very presence. I am the one you're looking for. I am the shalom. And so Jesus is saying, come to me. All of these things point to me. But how does he do it? Think about how he does it. I just highlighted a few of these things. I think we could walk through all of the different 
episodes here that are recounted in this genealogy, but just even in the ones that with Joseph and, and what they and the brothers and the sons of David, what even with those, what we see is Jesus was the one who who came amongst his brothers, came amongst humanity. I mean, he was, for a couple of coins, he was sold as well. And he was sent down into a pit. He took our shame upon him. He took our, the weariness of this world, our sin and our brokenness upon him, and he went down into the pit. But he conquered the pit. And unlike all the sons of David and all, all the ones who even David, in, in the midst of their leveraging all their rights and their privileges and their power in order to just please themselves, leveraging all that for themselves, Jesus instead allows himself to be exploited. He leverages all his rights and privileges to lay down his life for his people. He is the true Davidic king. He is the true and better Joseph. He is the one that all of these things, the tragedy has pointed to because throughout all of these things, God has been weaving another story in the story as it was not supposed to be and the story of a weary world. God is weaving in a story of rejoicing in life and peace through him. He's saying he's come. He's coming to the world. And of all the things that he could do then in verse 17, of all the ways that he could say he's the one and he could put an explanation point on this passage, what he does is he says he, he not only is just coming to the world, but he's recreating all things and reestablishing everything that had been lost, everything that had gone to chaos, everything that's just been broken down and fragmented. He's bringing it back and restoring it. And how does he do that? It's interesting because... We said it pointed back to the original genealogy. And this genealogy at the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and it says in six days he created all things. And on the seventh day he rested. He entered his shalom. He entered into this state. And Genesis 2 is him with Adam and Eve saying, delight in me, cultivate my glory. This is our life forever. Six days and on the seventh, a new state of affairs. What he does in verse 17 is Matthew says, so all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What's interesting, there are several different things where theologians are like, how do we understand this? And there are a few different ways. There's one way with the Hebrew letters for the name for David. It's, it's David, Bav, David. Uh, David, and then it's uh, 464, sorry, I'm trying to do this off memory, Um, 464, and it adds up to 14, and so it's emphasizing he's the true Davidic king. There are things like that, but the other one that I think is interesting, I think there's something to both of these. The other one that's interesting there is that this is essentially six sevens, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. That's two sevens, two sevens, two sevens, six sevens. Seven is the Hebrew word, that, or the, the Hebrew number for perfection. And he's saying in the seven days, God created the world just as it was meant to be. And now we have these generations, and it's six sevens. And God has recre- is recreating. But now we into, enter into the reign, into the day of who? Of the perfect, the established Christ. The one who will bring about the shalom. The one who is the presence of God's shalom. In other words, God is recreating all things. And he's taking that original genealogy of creation. He's reformulating. He's saying, do you see that God, even in the midst of what was lost, that now God is on top of his creation. He's doing this whole new work of redemption and his grace and his mercy. And on top of it, what he's bringing is this life forevermore. This completion. And it's in Jesus And now comes the reign of the one 
who will bring about the shalom of God. This is the Christmas story. It is not a small thing. It is saying to a world full of weariness, you can rejoice. One of the things I know, I knew again, you guys, you know, this morning is one of those tired days, right? Coming out Thanksgiving. And so what, what do you do with this? What do, we, what do we do? What I would want to encourage you to do over the next 30 or so days till Christmas is, is to take time each day to, whether it's lighting a candle at your own house and reading some scripture from the, from, from the birth narrative. Uh, there could be things, and by the way, I'm, uh, we're going to send out tomorrow with our weekly email. Um, I, I typed up originally a devotional to go along with this, um, so it's not final draft, so forgive me, but it's got some instructions in there for candle lighting and whatnot that you can do in your home. I would just say, in your home, take time during this season to focus your heart on Christ. You know, in the Christmas season, it's great. There are presents, there are candies and nuts and all, I don't know, all the, all the things and tinsel. Uh, but all these things that we have, and, but they're all meant during this season to point us to this joy that alt is ultimate. It's all meant to roll up in thanksgiving to God because he's brought us this state of affairs that where we have a peace because he's entered the world. In other words, it's not just empty sentimentalism like some Hallmark card. It's a real reality that's been achieved in Christ. And so during this holiday season, I encourage you to take steps to really focus your heart on Christ. Your, your heart will be prepared on Christmas morning to celebrate something. And, and the question is, is it prepared really to just marinate in what God has accomplished in the coming of his son? Over the next few weeks, we're going to get to see those, those aspects of what Abraham was pr promised to Abraham and how Christ has brought it. Next week, we're going to get to see how Jesus is the offspring. Jesus is the chosen one who came, Emmanuel, God with us. He's brought the shalom of God. Then the week after that, we're going to get to see when, when Caesar enters the page, how, how he's brought his reign, how Jesus brings. These are not the days of the Caesar anymore. These are the days of the Christ. And Jesus has brought his reign, the shalom of God, to his people and his kingdom. And then last week, we're going to then be able to see how the Magi, these mysterious men who come from the nations looking for Jesus. Why? Because he's the desire of nations. We're going to see how Jesus is fulfillment of our desire for shalom for the presence of God. This is why we can say that in the midst of this season, ours to our souls and to the world, to a weary world, to weary souls, rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, these truths. Lord, in the midst of a, of a, a weary world and a weary generation, Lord, and the cultural warfare and all the things that we've, we feel ourselves, we feel this tangibly, Lord, in the conflict around us. Lord, would you just remind us of the peace, of the shalom that we have in Christ? We're reminded of that old illustration of, of, of D-Day and V-Day. And remind us that, Lord, while we, it's D-Day, it's accomplished, this Jesus has won the battle, it's over, the war is over, it's actually, we're on our way to peacetime, it's just cleanup, that, that new state of affairs has begun. But we still await V-Day when you return when you return again and the fullness of your kingdom comes. And in this in-between time, Lord, where we're called here to do that cleanup work, the work that you've gone before us to do, would we do it with joy and reminding that even in the midst of the weariness around us, that there is a joy that cannot be taken, that we rejoice because we have a joy that's not dependent on our circumstances. And it's not merely that just that we seek a cessation of hostility or a ceasefire, an absence of conflict. 
but you have given us peace. You've given us shalom. We don't just seek an absence. We seek it. And so would we seek you and find your peace. Find the peace for the forgiveness of our sins. Find peace in the life that is found in you and the delight. And we re be families and homes that rejoice in that reality in this season. Would you do that work? In Jesus' name, amen.